Um, in Matthew 28, or 22, I'm sorry, um, we'll, we'll come to a really familiar passage of Scripture. And uh, if you are here last week, Ken took the morning to essentially make the case that if we want to be um, people who are positioned to receive God's transformative power in our lives, meaning if we want to be people that actually open ourselves up to experience life with God and therefore also to become people who can communicate the life of God with our lives, what Ken told, showed us last week is that participation in the local church is an absolute necessity. Christianity has always been a team sport, if that makes sense. It's following Jesus was never something we were, uh, de we were designed to do by ourselves, but it was something des designed to be done together as a family or as a community. So we're so glad that you're here and that you're part of this and that you would call Antioch your church. And we pray that through this teaching series, through this reading, that God would continue to strengthen the relationships, that we would discover the community that already exists as family members, uh, brothers and sisters of Jesus, and uh, children of God. And so to be part of the church is absolutely essential if we are going to experience the fullness of God's presence and power in our lives as well as become the kind of people that can do what the church is called to do. So Ken talked about the place in the Bible, places in the Bible, where we are told that we as the church are the body of Christ. On one hand, meaning that we all have different roles, like there's different body parts, each of us have different roles in the life of the church, but the bigger picture there is that Jesus has put his spirit in us and has called us now to be his body to the world to be his physical representation to the neighborhood that we live in, to the place where we work, to the city where we dwell, to the places where we travel. Jesus, if you haven't noticed, is not bodily present on earth anymore in the sense that he was in the New Testament, but he is bodily present in the sense that we are his body. So the idea is that as we live as the body of Christ in this city, that Ben would actually get to see Jesus. They would get to see his life and his love poured out through the way that we follow him and serve him together. And so what that means is that church isn't something you go to. It's not a service that you attend, but church is something that we are. It's not a one-day-week event that we go to, but it's a seven-day-a-week identity that we've been given. So I've always told people, I hope that you never go to church again. And instead, start realizing that you are the church. We are the church when we're gathered like this for worship and when we're scattered the other six days for mission. So sometimes we want to take our Christianity and compartmentalize it to that little box in our lives called faith or religion or spirituality. 
But that's obviously not the invitation that Jesus gives to come and to follow him. He's not saying for an hour and a half on Sundays and maybe a small group. He's saying all of life submitted to me, all of life lived in the context of the community of the family of God, all of life given to God's mission in the world. So stop going to church and realize you are the church. Sometimes we have a tendency to play by the Vegas rule when it comes to church. Like what happens at church stays at church, <laughs> right? I just kind of want to keep that little part of my life on Sundays and the rest, I do whatever I want. The vision of the gospel is that all of life would be contextualized by this identity and invitation to be the body, to be the family, to be the people of God wherever we are. And so if we are going to follow Jesus as a way of life, an incredibly important question for us to ask is what's the most important thing to Jesus about the way that we live? And that's essentially what he's asked in this really familiar passage in Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So they're essentially saying, out of all the hundreds of things that have been put down on paper regarding the life that God calls his people into, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing to you, Jesus, about those who would call themselves your followers? And in verse 37, Jesus famously replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So according to Jesus, the most important thing to him about the way that we live as his body, as his family, as his physical representatives in the world is that our lives are marked by love for God with everything we've got. And that love then expressed through a love for neighbor, a love for those people around us. According to Jesus, that's what he is after. That's his biggest hope for us, that we would be a people who love God deeply and passionately and that that love is fleshed out in the ways that we love one another and the way we love our neighbors in the world. But then he says, all the law and prophets hang on these two commands. So what's he saying there? He's going, this isn't anything new. He's connecting his moment to a much larger story. And he's reminding these religious leaders around him that this has always been the deal that God has had with his people. This has always been God's vision or dream for those that would call themselves his. That we would be a community marked by an authentic love for him and a selfless love of others. And the way Jesus communicates that is by saying, this is what the law and prophets are all about. This is what the story of God and his people has been saying for centuries now. 
So what he's really saying, and if you jump up just to verse 29, Jesus says, you are an heir because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. It's all the context of this relationship. He's saying, if you really knew the scriptures, then you would have known this. Now, when Jesus talks about the scriptures, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what we call the Old Testament, right? Obviously, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So the Bible that Jesus read, the Bible that Jesus referred to as authority, the Bible that Jesus uh, looked to to figure out what is the, the, the vision that God has for his people in the world, is what we would call the Old Testament. And what's crazy is if you study the life of Jesus, even just really quickly, you'll notice that he, his entire life is immersed in the scriptures. Like the very first story we have about him as a little boy, what's he doing? He's sitting in the temple studying the scriptures. And then all through his life, he's continually in his teaching, quoting and referencing and unpacking the word of God that's in the Old Testament. And ultimately, what we find is in Jesus' worst moments, in his hardest moments of temptation, pain, and suffering, the words on his tongue are the words of God. He is constantly speaking the scriptures in those moments of crisis, which we would understand to mean like when it all comes down to this moment, what words are you going to speak? And for him, it's like if you cut him open, that's what he bleeds. It's God's word in the scripture. So here's the point for now. We live in a culture that for the most part is pretty cool with Jesus and isn't really cool with organized religion. We live in a culture that thinks, hey, if you're spiritual... That's great. If you're a Christian, we probably won't hang out. And for us as Christians, as part of the church, some of that has crept in to our world as well. And for many of us, we really like the idea of Jesus. And we like some of his teachings on compassion, and forgiveness, and nonviolence, and non-judgment. Like in our culture, all of that sounds really good, and that's the kind of leader we want to follow. So we like Jesus. But many of us have no idea what to do with the rest of the Bible. I've talked to lots of people who are honestly struggling, and, I, and it's okay, but going, yeah, I read Jesus, and I really like him, and then I get to Paul. And that guy's sort of a jerk, (laughs) right? So what do you do with that? Or I like the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, but then I go back to read some of the places like Judges and 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and it's like that, I don't know what to do with that God. And so we end up going, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to read the red letters, and I'm going to try to live by those. And the rest of it, I just don't know. 
Okay, that's good. Follow Jesus. Start with him always. And if he's all you've got, then he's all you need. But here's the problem with that. If you are going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, you have to understand that his entire life and ministry and theology, if you will, is shaped by what we call the Old Testament. He believed the Old Testament. He read it. He studied it. He memorized it. He taught it. He understood that his Father in heaven was the God who was unveiled in the pages of the Old Testament. And so you can't say, I just follow Jesus, but I don't do Old Testament, right? You have to say, following Jesus means that I'm going to have to learn from him how to engage some of these more difficult and confusing parts of Scripture. Because he held them as authority. And he held them as the dominant narrative of the history of the world. And his own identity and mission and life found their place in the context of the scriptures. So all that brings us to this morning and saying, wouldn't it be cool if we could come to the same understanding that Jesus had when we look at the scriptures? So if you have an actual Bible, you'll notice in Matthew 22, if you kind of put your finger there, it's the end of the first book of the New Testament, most of the pages are to your left, right? And we like to spend a lot of time in the New Testament, and and again, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't look at Jesus or read the Gospels, but it's kind of obvious that when we start in the New Testament, when we start with Jesus, And that story, we're coming into the middle of a much larger story. Right? And why would you do that if you didn't have to? Like, do you try to go to a movie 45 minutes late just to make it more interesting? Like, you try to get there for the whole thing, right? When you open a book, you start at the beginning. Now, the reason we don't is because it is confusing and it is hard to read. And so, what I want to do real quickly, and some of you, this will feel a little bit ridiculous, but... I just want to walk you through what, what's on the left of the New Testament really quickly, okay? There's a couple main chunks, and this will help get us to the minor prophets. If you go back to the very beginning of your Bible, you can actually do this with me. I don't have any bookmarks, so this is going to be real time, okay? The very beginning of your Bible starts in Genesis, the book of beginnings. Genesis begins what the, the Hebrew people would call the Torah, right? This is the books of law. And it's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the books of the law tell the story of God creating the heavens and earth and selecting a people for himself, starting with this guy named Abraham, and promising to Abraham that through him there was going to be this great nation, this great family that would come to be known as Israel. And God's deal with them was that I will bless your family, Abraham, and I will make you a blessing. Meaning, I'm going to pour my life into Israel so that Israel can pour themselves into the nations. God would say, all nations on earth would be blessed through you. So God's plan to reconcile all things to himself starts with this guy Abraham. And a family, a community, a church if you will, 
And God says, I'm going to give myself to you so that you can give your lives away for the world. All right, so that's the story of the first five books, very, very briefly, known as the books of the law. Then you get to Joshua, if you want to flip over to Joshua. Then we start into what are called the history books, okay? And there's this big chunk of the next chapters of the story of how this little family... Abraham's little family grows into a great nation and then what it looks like as they kind of enter in to the promised land and there's this conversation where Israel's saying to God, all the other nations have a king we don't have a king, we just have you. And God's like, well, um, get a king then. So they get a king and uh, things don't go really well from that point on. And so uh, what happens eventually is that civil war breaks out among the members of this family, Israel. And the nation is divided into two nations, the northern and the southern kingdoms, and God's relationship, God's covenant with his people is fractured. So God sends these prophets to go and try to remind people about the covenant he's had, okay? So then you get through Joshua, that's a big chunk, First and Second Chronicles, and then when you get to Esther, that's the end of the history books, and then you get to this book, Job. And Job is the beginning of the writings or the wisdom books. You have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Sol Song of Solomon. So these are basically books of poetry that came about during these historical periods. And here's how you can think about them. When we talk about the Bible being the story of God, a lot of you will say, yeah, there's a lot of story, but then there's a lot of other stuff too. But all this other stuff, these other genres of literature, find their place within the story. So the writings, the books of wisdom, think of them as the soundtrack to the books of history. Right? This kind of gives this insight into the hearts and the minds, the emotions of what God's people are feeling and experiencing and what kinds of prayers are beginning to form within them as they go through this big, long, messy story. And so when you read the Psalms and the Proverbs and Job and all of that, it's soundtrack to the storyline that's already been laid out up until Esther. Okay, so then we go through Song of Solomon and we get to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah begins the prophets, okay, and the rest of the Old Testament is the prophets. And there's a few big ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, which are called the major prophets, and then after that is the minors. Now, you, you know why they're called the major? Because they're bigger. That's all, they're longer books, okay? So they've been clumped together to be called Major, so not that they're more important than the minor prophets, but they're just longer, okay? And so from here, we have these prophets, which we'll talk more about in a moment, but again, this isn't the next chapter in the story as it is now a new layer in the story. So we have the books of history telling what happened in, in Israel's history, and then we have the books of wisdom that give us an insight into the hearts and songs and prayers that, that emerged during that time. And then we have the books of prophecy. So they're all stacked up on top of each other. And the books of prophecy contain God's words to his people during this time of civil war and exile and wandering. The prophets are guys that God called up to communicate his word 
to his people. Okay, so there's three layers there. And hopefully that helps you a little bit understand where you are in the Bible when you randomly open up somewhere. Okay, and so at the end of the Minor Prophets, then we come to, or excuse me, at the end of the Major Prophets, then we come to the Minor Prophets. Whoa, these are long. It's going to take me a while. Hosea, okay, at the end of Daniel, you get to Hosea, and this is the beginning of the Minor Prophets. So again, the lesser, the minor, the shorter books of prophecy, okay? And so they aren't laid out for us chronologically in, in most of our Bibles, and that's okay. I'm, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it's helpful to understand what's going on here. And so we come to the Minor Prophets. How's that for an intro? <laughs> The Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus read. And there's these 12 shorter books that after they were written very quickly were compiled into a single scroll. So obviously they weren't binding books like we are today. These books were written on scrolls. And most of the longer books would be their own scroll, but the Minor Prophets were put on one scroll that became known as the Book of the Twelve, or simply just the Twelve. And so they were designed to be read together. And so it's not one continuous story, but it's sort of a, a compilation of multiple writings that make sense together. Okay? So when we get to prophets, for some of us, that's really weird language, right? And if all we can think of is the matrix or some fantasy or sci-fi, you know, fortune teller or future teller. In the Bible, when we talk about a prophet, you're not necessarily talking about somebody who predicts the future. And I want, want to be really clear on this. In the Bible, prophecy is simply so, a prophet is someone who listens to God and then tells others what God is saying. That's the call of a prophet, to be God's mouthpiece to whoever God wants to speak to. For whatever reason, God chose to raise up these individuals from amongst his people as prophets, okay? So it's not always future predicting. It's simply speaking the words of God. Okay, and um, when we get to the minor prophets, I mentioned this briefly last week, these are a, this is a gnarly bunch of dudes, okay? Maybe you know some people that could have been a minor prophet because they're socially super awkward. <laughs> they're really intense. You kind of get the impression that maybe personal hygiene isn't a high priority. Like their whole life is consumed with trying to hear from God and communicate what he's saying to his people. And in a lot of ways, they are performance artists, right? Which, again, kind of accentuates how kind of odd or weird they are. God has them do really weird things to communicate his word to the people. So sometimes they just speak God's word, but other times he has them act it out, right? One, one guy, Ezekiel, God says, I want you to lie on your side for a couple of years, and I want you to use like little sticks and pile up dirt and basically like recreate a little battlefield and play army guys. And that's going to tell everybody what's going to happen to you guys, right? So for two years, and then God's like, all right, good. Now I want you to burn all your hair. So he does. And it's all like God's creative, artistic way of trying to get the attention of his covenant people who have turned away from him. And so there's all, I mean, there's this other guy, Micah, we'll get to, who goes around naked for a while, and then it, what we're told is that he howls like a jackal and moans like an owl, okay? So 
these aren't just like casual dudes you want to hang out with, right? Like they are intense guys that are probably not that fun to be around, and we get all of their writings in the Book of the Twelve, and uh, just makes for really interesting conversation. And so, um, so like I said, it's not one continuous book; it's a compilation of twelve shorter books. And so, it's pretty tricky if you had to nail down like what is the theme, what are the minor prophets all about. But there's a couple big pieces, and uh, and we'll just hit those real quick. The minor prophets cover a period of history that's full of social disaster, okay? So there's wars going on, assassinations, earthquakes, famines, slavery, terrorism, poverty. Like it's socially, uh, all the worst stuff that can happen is happening. And so they're, they're communicating what is God saying to us in a world where everything's going wrong. And there's times where some of us can relate to that question. Whether it's personal tragedy or or global and social issues that just make us feel like, man, things are so jacked up in our world. What does God want to say to us? And so the prophets are speaking God's words in those moments. But in addition to social chaos, it's also a time of spiritual disaster where God's people have no longer held on to the covenant of being God's blessed and blessing people, but they have turned from God to worship idols and to worship the gods of foreign lands. And they've, they're living lives of immorality in every sense, living lives of greed and hypocrisy and all kinds of rebellion against God. Okay, so God's people aren't acting like God's people. And the prophets come along to communicate what God would say to his people living in rebellion. And what we get as we go through the minor prophets is a picture of a God who refuses to let go. A God who has made this covenant promise with Israel that through them one day all nations on earth will be blessed that he's going to make everything new, everything is going to be made right again, and it's going to happen through this really jacked-up, dysfunctional family of idolaters. What does God have to say to those kinds of people? And what we see is a God who doesn't go back on his word, a God who relentlessly pursues his renegade people, A God who is faithful even when we are faithless. A God who is determined to work out his purposes of salvation for the world even though the vessel is completely unfit for the job. And when these covenant people, when God's family find themselves in a place of disaster, in a place of suffering, in a place of pain, whether it's because of outside circumstances that have happened to them or if they're in those places of suffering and pain and need because of the terrible decisions they had made themselves. We have a God who enters into suffering with them, who is present with them in their worst moments, and is determined to continue to work out his purposes both in them 
and through them. And so the minor prophets contain the story of a loving father and his dysfunctional family, a faithful husband and his adulterous wife, a just king and his rebellious subjects, an awesome God and his renegade people. And in each picture, in each book, we get to see a picture of God calling people back to himself. And so, we're going to take just a couple minutes and look at the first prophet that you're going to read. And I promise this will be short. Let's go to Jonah. And I just want to show you, if you're doing the reading plan with us, you'll read Jonah tomorrow. You'll read the entire thing, and it'll take you less than 10 minutes, which is kind of crazy. So the book of Jonah is an interesting book in that it doesn't contain a whole lot of the content of God's prophecy, like some of the other books we'll get to that do. But Jonah is what you would call a prophetic narrative, meaning this is a story that's included in the prophets because the narrative, the storyline itself, communicates what God would say to his renegade people during this time. And so in Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay? And so Nineveh was the capital of Assyria and it was essentially the biggest, baddest city around. The Ninevites had a reputation for being a cruel, violent, bloodthirsty, evil people. So for example, when they would take captives from surrounding nations, the Ninevites would often torture those captives by skinning them alive, okay? And um, Nahum, chapter three, I'll read this to you real quick. This is what the prophet Nahum says about Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears, and listen to this, many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, okay? So that's that's Nineveh, okay? It's a horrible place marked by all kinds of terrible violence and evil. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go there. And I want you to speak my words. I want you to prophesy against the people of Nineveh. Okay? So that's the mission. What does Jonah do? Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay? So God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah runs away. Now, I've showed you guys this before, but just real quick, let me show you on a map what this looks like. Do we have that? Nice. Okay, so Jonah is from this tiny little town in Israel called Gath Hefer, we're told. And God says, I want you to go about 500 miles to the, oh, shoot, help me, I'm turned around. Is that east? (laughs) All right, to the east, to this town, Nineveh. Okay, not a huge trip. Next slide. So we're told that Jonah goes from Gath Heifer down to Joppa. And then where does he go? <laughs> to Tarshish. <laughs> okay? So he's in Israel. 
God says, I want you to go 500 miles to the east to Nineveh. Instead, he goes to Joppa, gets on a boat, and goes 2,500 miles to the west to Tarshish. Okay, modern day, Israel is there. Where would Nineveh be? Iraq. Where would Tarshish be? Spain. Okay, easy decision. Ah, you know, Iraq or Spain? I think I'll go to Spain. Um, And it's literally, if you understand the ancient Near East, Tarshish is literally the ends of the earth for these people, right? Because after you pass through the Straits of Gibraltar, you're out in the open sea and nobody knew what was over there. So this is, Tarshish is our equivalent of Timbuktu, right? It just means as far away from here as I could ever possibly get. And so Jonah's a funny book. It'll help you if you know that it's supposed to be funny. Think of Jonah kind of like as a Michael Scott character from The Office who just kind of always does the wrong thing and never gets it. That's who Jonah is. So he goes 2,500 miles in the wrong direction (laughs) to Tarshish, okay? So here's what's important to see. Jonah doesn't just run away from Nineveh. What's he running away from? Verse 3 tells us really clearly. Jonah runs away from the Lord. So it's not just, no, I'd rather not go to Nineveh. It's like, no, I'm not going with God. He runs away from the Lord. As far as possible. Okay, so why does he go to Tarshish then? Why doesn't he just stay where he is? (laughs) Well, we're told in verse 3, that he's running away from the Lord, he's fleeing from the Lord. So the idea isn't just kind of apathy. The idea is rebellion. Jonah is running away as fast and as far as he can. So here is where the prophetic message of the story, the story of Jonah, but the story in the Minor Prophets becomes clear. Remember, this is a prophetic narrative originally given to the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, with a calling to be a nation that blesses all the other nations. And at this point in the story of Israel, they have broken that covenant. And they have said, no, God, we're going to worship other gods. We're not going to follow you. We're going to live however we want. And so Israel has fled from God. And now we're starting to see what happens here. Jonah, in this work of prophetic narrative, represents God's people who are running away from him in active rebellion. And so, of course, this is where you and I start to see ourselves in the story as well. And maybe it's not so funny anymore. That we also have this propensity to run away from God. And even those of us who know Jesus well and love him and are devoted to him, we know that there's this sinful flesh constantly lurking beneath the surface of our hearts. That we kind of have this bent that we talked about a couple weeks ago, self-control, that part of us that doesn't want God, that wants to be our own God, that doesn't want to live a a God-centered life but wants to live a self-centered life. And we sing the hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If we're honest, 
We are all Jonah. His story is our story. We all have places in our lives where we're booking it to Tarshish, where we know what God has called us to, the life he's called us to lead, the values he's called us to hold, the people and the places he's called us to give ourselves, and we would just rather not do it. In what may seem like really small and insignificant ways, we drown out the voice of God. And we turn and we go the other way instead. Because we'd rather do what we want than have him interrupt and interfere with our plans. And so the story of Jonah illuminates that sinful bent within all of us and gives us a warning about what happens when you flee from God, but it also gives us a picture of how God responds when his people drift away, okay? So I won't go through the whole story of Jonah. You get to read it tomorrow. It's a great story. If I were God, I would go, okay, Jonah, you're, you're in Tarshish. I'll just find the next dude. And that's not what God does, though. God chases him down. God relentlessly pursues him. God, when he does come in contact with Jonah, asks Jonah a bunch of questions, trying to unpack Like, Jonah, why are you doing this? Why do you feel that way? Why are you acting that way? And all of that, what's the picture we get of God? It's a God who isn't just interested in using us, but he's interested in our hearts. It's almost like that's the same God Jesus was talking about in Matthew 22. Like he wants to be loved with all of our heart soul, mind, and strength. And he's on a mission to bring us to that place. And it's in the context of our rebellion of him and ignorance of him that he goes after us and patiently and passionately pursues us and calls us back to himself. Just like he did with Jonah, just like he did with Israel. This is the picture of God we have in the Minor Prophets. So I'll let you read the rest of the story yourself, but turn the page real quick and we'll end with Jonah chapter four and verse two. And uh, Jonah ends up in Nineveh eventually and he does speak God's word and people listen and respond in faith and repentance. A revival breaks out. People trust God and turn from their idols. And so you think Jonah would be stoked about it, right? But he is so mad He is so mad that God would be gracious and compassionate to these evil people. And so in Jonah 4, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take, my, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Okay? Again, it's funny, right? He's going, these people listened to my sermon, and they believed, and I'm so mad, I want to die, right? Like most of us would kill to have somebody listen to our sermon and believe it, right? But he's like, no, I hate this. What's he mad about? 
because God's so gracious and compassionate. That verse there, that description in in verse two, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, that's a very familiar phrase. It originally comes in Exodus chapter 34 when God meets Moses on the mountain and Moses dis- or God describes himself with these words. And here's why it's important. This is actually the only place in the Bible where God makes an autobiographical statement about his own character. One place in scripture in Exodus 34 where God says, let me tell you what I'm like. Let me tell you what kind of God I am, just to clear up any confusion. Because like when you get to Leviticus and Judges and all that, like you're gonna have some questions. Let me start by telling you who I am, what I'm like, what kind of God I am. And you'd say, this is the kind of God I am. I'm gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, a God who forgives, he would go on to say. Okay, that chunk in Exodus 34 becomes the most quoted passage of Scripture in the Bible, if that makes sense. Because it's God's self-revelation of who he is and what he's like. And so over and over again, biblical authors look to this and they recite it. So it's the most quoted Bible verse in the Bible by biblical writers. Does that make sense? And it's absolutely essential for a theology of God. Let's start by asking, how does God describe himself? Who does God say he is? What does God say he's like? Let's start there. And so Jonah, as well, is immersed in this story. He's not just some dude on a boat, but he sees himself as part of this long, unfolding narrative. And he knows this about God. And he doesn't mean it as a compliment in verse 2. Like, those are all pretty good things, and Jonah's mad about it. Why are you so gracious and compassionate? Why are you so slow to anger? And it leaves unresolved. The book of Jonah ends, and we don't really know what's going to happen. God says, Jonah, why are you so mad? Don't you know? that I care about that city? Like cities are made of people. I love people. So I care about that city. But then he takes it even further and he closes the very last words of the book. There's 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. So God's saying, I don't just care about individual souls. Like I care about the world I've created and everything in it. And so now we start to see this It's a much bigger story, isn't it? This is the story of Israel. And now this is our story as well. That we are part of God's covenant people who have been invited to join him on his mission to make all things new. To reconcile all things to himself into right relationship, shalom or justice, things the way they ought to be. God is saying, Israel, church, that is what I'm all about. 
So don't be mad at me for being gracious and compassionate. Don't you realize that's the only way you got to be part of this story? It's because God has been gracious and compassionate and slow to anger towards us. And so the good news of, of the promise of reconciliation, the promise of renewal of all creation is not only that we get to be part of it, it's that we get to be the recipients of it as well. That as we hold on to this future hope that one day God's gonna make everything new, we get to stand in a place today where we ask him, as you make all things new, would you begin with us? Would you make me new? Would you come after me in those places where I'm in rebellion against you or ignorance of you? Would you confront me in those places where I'm living self-centered instead of God-centered? God, would you reveal yourself to me as I try my best to run away from you? And the picture of God that we have in the Bible is, yeah, I will. I will come after you. The warning is, that if we keep running away, it's not going to go well for us, and it's not God's fault. And so in all of this, in Jonah and all the other prophets we're going to look at, we see this picture of God's word to his people during jacked-up times. And in Jonah specifically, we get a picture of a guy running away from God who would rather die than obey God, which begins to give our hearts a longing for a true and better Jonah. Someone who would hear the words of the Father and listen and obey. Someone who would say, I only do what the Father tells me to. Someone who would look upon a city full of sinners and have compassion over them and weep for them as opposed to run the other way. And in Jesus... This is the God we have. That same God revealed in Exodus 34 has been made flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. And now he would say to us, you are my body. You are my people in this world. So go, become known in Bend, Oregon as those who are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. As we do this, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers get to see a picture of who God really is and that work of restoration begins to take root in this very soil. We're gonna transition to a time of reflection and worship. At this time we'll also receive the offering and I really would encourage you, if this is the church that you call yourself part of, if you are part of this body, then we all do our part. And that looks like lots of different things, but one of the things it means for sure is that we all contribute to support the work that God's doing in us and through us, financially, however we could. And so this is not just collecting dues. This is an act of worship and faith and submission to God as well. Father, we're so thankful that you relentlessly pursue your people. I'll be the first to admit there are many places in my life where I am prone to turn and run away from you. 
but you have passionately pursued us and ultimately you have done it at the cost of the life of your son. You've not just told us that you're gracious, you have shown your grace in an undeniable way. And so I pray, God, that this good news would sink deeper into our hearts this morning. Over the next eight weeks, as we read through your prophets, would you illuminate us, uh, our hearing and our, our reading, that we may hear your word, that you may continue the good work you've started in us of forming Christ's body amongst us, that this city would get to see and touch and experience your good news seven days a week. We love you, we trust you. 